obnoxious and self-involved. That's me, according to an anonymous individual posting on Reddit. And of course it's true. Self-involved? Duh. I have a podcast. And I make my podcast as much about me as I do playwrights I speak with. Obnoxious? I mean, less so as I age, but still. Yeah. However, the obnoxious and self-involved criticism was followed by another anonymous individual who claimed to have read several of my plays and informed me the reason I am not successful is because my writing is weak. That's the word they used. Weak. I don't know who this person is, yet what they said still bothered me. And that's just how it goes. We put things out there and people respond however they respond. Also, I received an email from a listener recently. This is what they said. I just wanted to thank you for these amazing interviews that I look forward to listening to every time. You have such a unique style in the way you interview guests and the way that they open up to you. It's intimate and profound and wonderful content. I learn so much and I feel like I'm part of the conversation. I receive kind messages like that from time to time and they mean a great deal. Are the kind messages more or less valid than the unkind? Not at all, but they sure do feel better. Why am I sharing this? Well, as already established, I am obnoxious and self-involved. I am also interested in reminding myself that we are all out here making things and hoping they connect with people and mean something to people. And sometimes they do and sometimes they do not. There are people with opinions about me and my work and opinions about you and your work. And we have opinions of our own about others and the work of others. What I hope for is a future when the opinions we express actually say something. Otherwise, those opinions are weak and obnoxious. subtext podcast my name is brian james polak this month on the subtext i share a conversation with katie kavang before we get to that i want to share some excellent news i have mentioned several times that i planned to find a home for the first 25 episodes of the subtext that were originally produced by the now defunct la stage alliance when they closed down a while back those episodes sort of disappeared but now i have found a home for them you can find them on youtube just go to YouTube and type in The Subtext Podcast and you will find them. As I speak right now, 20 of the 25 episodes have been uploaded. In a couple weeks or so, I will have the remaining five posted. Listening back to the first four episodes that were released in 2015 reminded me how much I enjoyed creating this podcast with Danny Oliver and how quickly we came to divine what this podcast will be. The opening monologue to the first episode with Madri Shaker brought me right back to the coffee shop and conversation I had with an inspirational stranger. 
And speaking of inspirational, this month I spoke to the incredible Katie Ka Vang. Katie is among American playwright and storyteller. Her work explores the complexity of cultures and communities, diaspora, disease, and transformation. Her work has been developed and presented at East West Players, Mixed Blood Theater, Pangaea World Theater, Pillsbury House Theater, Theater Moo, the Royal Court Theater, and many, many more. She is currently a 2023-24 Constellation Fellow from the Center for Cultural Power, working with Indigenous Roots. Katie received the 2022-23 McKnight and 2019-20 Many Voices Fellowship at the Playwright Center. She was a member of East West Players 21-23 Playwrights Group, and she holds an MFA in Playwriting from Brown University, which we spent a good amount of time discussing. This conversation was recorded in St. Paul, Minnesota in December of 2023. Yeah. And I'm trying to unlearn that like structure means you are prioritizing the thing and not the story, mm. you know? So then I kind of like get worded out. But I'm trying to find a happy medium where those two meet, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, How are you, where are you in the, in the journey? Uh, it feels very, <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say in a nascent stage. I mean, I, I feel like I'm in a place where I'm rediscovering who I am. I don't know, it sounds kind of like so new agey, but I'm just like, it feels like, is this the kind of writer I want to be? Is this what I'm known for? What is it that I'm known for? What do I want to be known for? I'm not sure if this is a fair question, but if you're talking about um, a new you, like, talk about, like, who was the, the previous you? <laughs> the previous me? Yeah. Uh, let me see. I think someone who was sort of all about creativity and like the story or like the i feel something mm-hmm. and let me go in my feelings yeah which is i think an important part of the writing process too uh, and also it can't live just in like this is what i'm feeling you know because i think at some point i do struggle with like okay what is the story that i'm trying to tell mm-hmm. and i get to I zoned in too deep into like this detail or like this character that I'm like, what is this thing about? Mm. You know? Yeah. And I think that comes from my background as a performance artist. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think in performance art, you have a, what I call fragments of like writings. And then you kind of put them all together and you experiment like what goes well with what, mm-hmm. with what movement, you know? And I, I guess when I entered sort of like the playwriting realm, I felt like I couldn't do that, even though, <laughs> even though I went to Brown for my MFA and studied under Eric N. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. I, I was like, yeah, okay. But I also realized that so much of the stories that I was sharing and telling was sort of from my community, my Hmong American community, mm-hmm. you know? And so there was some part of me where when I went to grad school, like I, I couldn't hear those stories anymore. And I was trying to like, I couldn't hear those voices anymore, you know? And I think it's cause I was just, 
I was not here. I was somewhere else. Because you were so far? I think so. Okay. Um, and I think sometimes I, you know, I would write from my lived experiences, which is like how I write most of my plays. Mm -hmm. But something about not being in the community, and at that time, I wasn't, I think, equipped enough to not, to write about my community without being in it. Mm -hmm. Now I think it's a little different, you know. Um, but something about that, I can't remember where I was going with this. When you were, when you, a moment ago when you were talking about performance art, uh, in, in creating performance pieces, uh, I'm, I was thinking about feelings. Like where mm. were your, when you're creating your, those pieces and that kind of work, are you thinking in terms of like, are you feeling your way through it? Are you thinking your way through it? Is there, is there a narrative, I mean, a narrative to you that may not be apparent in performance like what was that talk talk to me about that yeah I think I came so I entered performance art through writing what I would call poetry but then I was like oh all my friends who are cool who I love who are activists are like doom slam poetry and I'm like I want to be seen in that too and so I tried to do poetry and spoken word poetry but then I realized that my poems are more like monologues uh -huh. so I would like get into a character who was like my mom and then I would like do this poem you know and then I was like as I started to like gather more theater friends and they're like oh this is actually a monologue mm -hmm. you know and I'm like oh okay so then I was like maybe they're poologues and then I did like some one-off thing with a with a like a small theater company and then um, I was asked to be a part of like this International Women's Day like devising thing where they were doing something specifically for International Women's Day and it was like a group of all like uh, uh, BIPOC women and it was around immigrant women in war. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I have no idea what that is, but it sounds interesting and let's do it. And I think that the the process of that thing i was like i don't know what this is but i really like it yeah and i want to do more of that and being a part of that little group i mean we had folks who were like um like susie Mesro, like she runs a theater company now and like these are all like folks who are in the field now you know mm -hmm. and they were like well if you like this you should start auditioning as an actor and i'm like okay i'm that's what i'm gonna do so I started to audition as an actor. And I mean, I was a horrible actor in that, in that sense. I love performance, yeah. but there's something about acting where I think maybe it's not really me or like I didn't get the jobs. And then when I did get it, I felt like I didn't like the material. Like I felt like I was wasting my time. You know, I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. And then I also felt like, um, even though it was like an Asian American character or Asian character, like at that time, it was sort of like a caricature okay. of like Asian Americans and it, or at least it wasn't true to my lived experiences. And at that time I was like, uh, I feel like I don't want to do this. I didn't know, I didn't have the language to be like, this is stereotyping, mm -hmm. you know? And so I was like, I'm not going to do that. Um, so I found myself sort of like angry because I'm like, I want to do this, but I don't know how, cause I didn't grow up with theater in my life you know I 
the daughter of Hmong refugee immigrants, you know? And so I'm like, I'm not really sure how to do this. And then the poologues also, um, I started to continue writing those because the folks who I created this devised piece with was like, well, why don't you write your own? And I'm like, I'm not a writer though. I'm an actor, you know, I'm a, you know, and they're like, well, that's... Because you've got to be one or the other, right? You've right. Got, you've got Apparently, to, you've got to, yeah. you got to be in a yeah. box. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. And so um, they encouraged me to, like, just write my, like, experiences down. Yeah. And I did that. You know, at that time, I was really grappling with understanding my family's history. Um, and so I wrote my first solo show called Mong Bollywood because I love Bollywood movies. Mm -hmm. Grew up watching them too. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. And then that was sort of like my first foray into like writing a script. Yeah. And that was sort of like, I didn't, I just knew that it felt good to write it and to perform it. Yeah. <laughs> but I never really felt like it was a solid script. You know? When you were working on that, did you have like, um, touchstones or like other performance art pieces or other scripts yeah let me see I think at that time I didn't read a lot of scripts at that time yet I saw a lot of work I think I saw a lot of local work mm -hmm. a lot of local performance art and it was um, I saw this piece called, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but it was by a uh, Korean adoptee, Kim Thompson. And it was really about her identity and understanding where she came from and sort of the, um, her artist's journey. Mm -hmm. And even though she's a Korean adoptee, I'm Hmong American, something about sort of the, um, the nonlinear ness of it mm -hmm. i was like oh i like jive with yeah. it so much yeah. you know and and i was okay with like i don't need like a a story that you know is like so linear and and that's that was sort of my foray into theater um but then i was like oh shit i'm like almost 30 i'm still i'm making like fifteen thousand dollars a year i want to be able to like help take care of my mom one day you know, and I'm like, this is not cute, struggling, mm -hmm. you know. So I, you know, one of my mentors is Lori Carlos, the late Lori Carlos. And uh, she encouraged me to apply to grad schools. And I was like, what is this, you know? Yeah. And all I knew is that, like, they would pay me to go, these programs that I wanted to study and hopefully come out with some kind of, like, degree that would help me have a career in theater. So take me back to uh, earlier in your yeah. life. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, you, your parents are Hmong immigrants. Yeah, Hmong refugee immigrants. Refugee immigrants yeah. in, in this area? No, so they immigrated from, they were in a refugee camp in Thailand. And then we came, they came to the States in 78. Mm -hmm. And they landed in Santa Ana, California. Mm -hmm. And I'm the youngest of seven children. And then I, my parents had me in 79. 
And then we sort of like bounced around to Portland, Oregon, moved back to like Merced, California, mm. lived in Colorado for a big chunk of my life. And then I moved here when I was 18. Yeah. Your whole family? No, 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 no. I mean, <laughs> uh, so I moved here when you I was moved 18. Here. Yeah, okay. yeah. My family was still in Colorado. And then by that point, two of my older sisters had gotten married mm-hmm. um, and they both lived here. Mm-hmm. And so also growing up, you know, in a Hmong refugee immigrant home, also my family is Christian. I couldn't do shit in life. And so when my sisters moved here with their families, I was like, oh, you know what, mom? I'm going to move to Minnesota right. because I need a job. And my sisters are there. Yeah. But really my husband, who was my boyfriend, then lived here too. Uh-huh. And so that was a way of, for me to like, you know, like, get away from my mom mm-hmm. but under sort of the umbrella of like i'm my sisters i'll be with my sisters right it's safe yeah right because yeah. people you already know yes will be there yeah right so in this in this like uh period of time before moving to minneapolis when you were bouncing around yeah uh with the family what were were you artistically inclined like where were the arts i think s- i think yeah, like not officially, but because my family went to church, we went to Hmong church. And so within the Hmong church, there was always like praise and worship. Mm-hmm. And I, as a young, as a young Hmong girl, I grew up going to church every Sunday and we would sing. And then I became a part of like this Hmong Christian band. Mm-hmm. And so I would like sing. And then I also became like the conductor of like the youth choir, you know? And so I think it was like always a part of my like periphery and really like church was really the way that I, that was my first, I think performance, Mm -hmm. I think whatever in the, whatever sense. At the time, uh, maybe you, maybe you don't even know, but at the time, did it feel like you were performing or did it feel like you were doing church? It felt more like I was doing church, but it's so funny because I think about music now and like even now I watch a lot of my community <laughs> who still go to church mm-hmm. and they do, they, they do these amazing like streams and I watch it sometimes on Facebook on like praise and worship and I'm like, oh, you know, it's the spirit of God that's moving you. But I'm like, I think scientifically music actually has the capability to change the vibration mm-hmm. of, of your, your vibration. So I think while sometimes people elude it to like the spirit of God, I'm like, sure. But also I think just music in general and like the arts sort of have this like uplifting element, mm. you know? So I can't remember where I was going with that. When, when you mentioned praise and worship, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I nodded as if I understood and Do you know what that is? and I don't and I just decided I'm not going to pretend. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, praise and worship is basically where when you're in church and there's a group in front of the altar that lead the whole congregation mm-hmm. of the audience in singing together. Okay. And so now I hear they're a lot more lengthier. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and so you kind of sing communally together, and yeah, okay. I love singing communally. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, there really is now. I get it. The vi- the vibration, like yeah, the, the yeah. connectedness, uh, 
I've heard many people say over the years that uh, theater is like is like church. Yeah. And there that is a I may have talked about this on the podcast with somebody else in the past, but that is a statement I've heard uh, many times and I think about it a lot. Yeah. Because I think about um, and this is a bit of a diversion, but we're going to come back to you. But oh, just are you going to edit this? Because I feel like I'm talking in circles. Oh, sure. Maybe. <laughs> OK. All we'll right. see. All right. Sometimes we'll things we'll get see. edited. Okay. Sometimes it all ends up making sense in the end. All right. <laughs> it's all about the journey, right? Got you. Okay. Um, but so I think about uh, theater and church with regards to accessibility. And when I hear an artist compare uh, mm. their theater experience, making theater with a church experience, yeah. that I bump up against that mm. because of accessibility. Uh, in most faiths, I can walk in to the church and be part of that and join it. If I, yeah. if I choose to, I can't do that in the theater. I, the theater maker, can't show up at the theater and say, I would like to be part of this. Like there is actually accessibility barriers. Interesting. So when yeah. I when I hear and you you didn't make this comparison. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm not putting that on you yeah, at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I uh it. because we're talking about it is mm -hmm. why it's popping into my head. Um so you asked about editing, this might be something I did out. Who knows? Yeah, no, no. But I, but anyway, so that so I so I think very much about how um churches tend to be much more accessible mm -hmm. to folks uh, regardless of what they're actually bringing in yeah. inside them, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. In their hearts, in their minds, in their spirits. Um, and uh, theater is not the same way. You need to, you need to earn, you don't need to earn your way into the church. Interesting. You need I to hear, earn your way I into the that. theater. Yeah. As an audience member, however, it's different. Mm -hmm. You kind of need to earn your way into the theater by, being able to afford access but it's yeah. more accessible i wonder if it's i wonder if it's about like the participation in the making of like a thing right yeah. like even the feeling yeah i get the it feel I, yeah the feeling the feeling because <laughs> yeah, there yeah. there is a, like i'm not a i'm not a person that goes to church but i definitely understand that feeling and that's yeah. this is how it connects back to what you're talking about yeah. that communal feeling because when I get the opportunity to make theater mm -hmm. and I'm around the table mm -hmm. with folks working on the script or I'm in the room during the period of creation or I'm in the room during the period of performance, there is that feeling. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard to, to put words to yeah. and you need to feel it to feel it. You mm -hmm. know when you know sort mm -hmm. of thing. Um, and I get that connection because mm -hmm. that's what, uh, a lot of folks get in their religious experience going mm -hmm. going to church. So that connection makes a lot of sense to me. I am just so stuck on accessibility that I yeah. I have a hard time making uh, making that that leap. But you know, I think there's something about the being an artist and being a part of a theater. Yeah. You know, it's like I used to go back and forth like, fuck those bitches. They don't know how great I am. Or, you know, yeah. like, I want to work with them, but I don't, you know. But then it's also like, oh, shit. But how can I move further? I feel like it's like this 
game that you kind of have to play, yeah. you know? And so part of my life, I, w- I worked in a nonprofit, um, and I, like, arts nonprofit, community organizing, artist organizing, mm-hmm. really using arts as a tool for change and mobilizing artists to, like, kind of step into their power, yeah. you know? I think accessibility is so much about relationship building mm-hmm. too, right? And it's like, and so, oh yeah, I said because I was a relationship manager mm-hmm. for a nonprofit. And I was like, what is that even? Right, you know, yeah. like, you know, I think when you had done it all your life and also you grew up in a culture where like, yeah, everything is community. You raise each other, you know, then th- when they put a word to you, are like, oh, is that what this is? You know, like when they called me a community artist, I'm like, what does that mean? What is that? Right. You know? And how is, how is community artists different than artists? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I have no, I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. Whatever. I mean, I do what I do, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, I think accessibility comes with relationships, but that also comes with like being, being able to get opportunities to be in the room with these people, mm-hmm. you know? And then it's like, when you are in the room with these people, can you be so dynamic or they find you so interesting, you know? Yeah. And it's like, and I also find myself like, be myself, talk about my work, but also like, do I have, how high do I have to jump? You know? Yeah. And I think this is sort of where I was trying to get at with like, I'm trying to refigure myself out. You know, like I'm in a place in my life where I'm like, do I just continue doing the work that I do or do I want to like, how badly do I continue to play this game of like, you know, trying to meet people, trying to do this, you know? I want to come back to that. Yeah. Um, because I want to fill in more of, of your backstory a sure. little bit. <laughs> sure. I want to understand where you're coming from before yeah. you tell me where you want to go. Okay. <laughs> um, so you're around, you're around 30 and folks are like, you should go to grad school. Yeah. And you choose uh, to go to grad school for writing? For playwriting. Right. Yeah. And why not performance? I just if felt that's what that was the like mostly what you were doing at the time, right? Yeah, yeah, I was performing mostly. I think I had one play that had been done. It was my first full length play where I wasn't in it. I was the playwright, mm-hmm. and that was actually the thing that got me into grad school. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, I'm a playwright. Um. I just felt like I didn't have the acting chops that like I saw a lot of my peers have. Mm. And I was like, and then this person had gone to an MFA. This person is like, they had parents in theater. And I was just like, I like performance, but I don't know if I want to do it in this way. Mm -hmm. And I also felt like there's something, although it feels very isolating at times, writing, I felt like I really loved trying to figure out um, like this world that I was trying to create, you know, or like I try, I love trying to figure out what it is I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what it mm-hmm. is. And I think the thing with playwriting is there are more opportunities out there that allow me time to figure out what I'm trying to say. Um, maybe that's why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the promise with the program that I went to is that um it's just straddles all that like you can do whatever you want you know and it's like you're gonna work with like neuroscientists and right you're like okay you know 
Um, and also it was like a fully funded thing. And I'm like, I'm not trying to pay for nothing. I'm still trying to pay. I'm trying to pay off my undergrad. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, when, when I was living in Los Angeles, I was just starting to write plays and I was yeah. working at a theater and, um, how old were you? Can I ask at that time or, uh, uh er, early to mid thirties. Okay. Great. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. So I started to write plays in my, in my thirties and, uh, and so I was living in Los Angeles, and uh, the idea of going to grad school was like very, very distant. Yeah. But Cal Arts oh, was, yes. you know, very present, and a lot of Cal Artians were working at the theater where I worked, and lots of the theaters in Los Angeles. Yeah. And uh, Eric N. Yes. Was was his reputation? Yeah. Was was big for creating church. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I, as a as a as a baby writer, was so intimidated by like I'm like I can't like I can't conceptualize what me would what I would be like in a program like that. Yeah, working with um, an artist like him. Yeah, so I, I was like uh, I can't I can't do it. I ended up going to USC. Because um, I met Luis Alfaro, oh, yeah. who teaches at the USC uh, MFA playwriting program, and I was just like, that that that's a person that I that I understand that I feel yeah. like I can learn from. So that's where I ended up gravitating yeah. in that direction. So uh, I have this. I've never met Eric yeah. before, uh, but I have this like weird hopefully I'll talk to him for this one day. Um, but I have this like weird perception of him as like a spirit, not a human being. Like he exists in the air, not on the earth. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. And I think that is pretty accurate. I mean, in my experience, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I say a lot, like when I was in grad school and we would do, salon and workshop I felt like I was in church with yeah, him you know yeah. like he just was able to like speak in a way where it, it felt really inspirational yeah you know um yeah so at that time uh you were like I'm going to grad school yeah you apply to Brown fully funded yeah Brown's in Rhode Island yeah right <laughs> uh <laughs> did did you do like do you have the type of family where you talked about this with your with your parents or siblings or is it, or is it more like you just let them know what you were yeah like, I mean I've, doing? That, by that point I was also like you know thirty yeah or twenty nine you know and I was like this is what I'm gonna do and so also I had cancer at that time so I had cancer and I yeah I, I was telling someone recently last week I was like I feel like I've lived a million lives yeah it kind of sounds that way. <laughs> So I was diagnosed with cancer like that December. And basically all of December, I was just like, I was diagnosed with stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So I was just like, from January to June, I was like going through treatment. And I had my, <laughs> my interview with Eric in, I think, February. And we went, hopped on um, Skype then. And I was like bald, and he's like, "So, so once you know, we'd love to offer you a seat." But I've also there's my community, thankfully, really um, 
organized a lot around my health and like mm-hmm. helped me with like fundraisers like crazy you know and so there's a lot of like um i think social media around it and so he was like i googled you and i found all this stuff and he's like we'd love to offer you a seat but we know what's happening um do you want to defer and i was like fuck no mm-hmm. i was like if i defer i don't know who i'm like competing against next year you know yeah. and so i accepted and i told him that i should be done in june and be ready like i'm gonna have like two months off and then i'm gonna come to brown and i did that but you know i think grad school is not exactly conducive to a healing environment um so where was your health by that time so i was in remission so in june middle of june beginning of june i was declared in remission and then um yeah and then i got ready whatever ready was Mm -hmm. um and in august my uh boyfriend husband now drove we drove and he dropped me off rhode island and i (laughs) did the first like year and a half there and then i relapsed Mm. i relapsed and then i came back for treatment and then i and then when i relapsed the treatment at that time was um, to do a bone marrow transplant. So I got, I had to have two bone marrow transplants that were done. So I did the first bone marrow transplant and right afterwards they do testing and they're like, Oh, you're in the clear. And at that time, um, I also got accepted to uh, the Royal courts, like international playwriting residency, Mm -hmm. which I don't think they have anymore. But, and so there was like a small period of time where I was like, I had, I was in remission from um, the first bone marrow transplant. So it's like, oh, you're great. You can go on this trip that you want to go on. So then I took a trip to London, did a residency, came back, and then was planning on to go back to grad school like in the fall. Mm-hmm. It was like you know, August or something. And I got a checkup four days before I was uh, going to go back. And they're like, you it's not gone i'm like is it not gone or did i relapse and they're like you probably relapsed and so they're like we need to start you treatment on that second bone marrow transplant and i was like i hold on Mm -hmm. i was like i have to think about this because i think my body was just going through so much i was like in a place where i was just numb you know and like all these things were happening to my body Mm And so I was like, I I think I need to like, you know, at least think about this. And they're like, what's there to think about, you know? And also the the language, the medical language is so interesting, right? Like sometimes I feel like the oncologist I was seeing at that time, he was using this language where I was like, what the fuck are you saying? Like, are you speaking English? You know? And then when I would like, I don't know what you're talking about, back the fuck up. And then he was, he would come up and say, well, if you don't do, you'll die. So I'm like, well, well that I understood. Right. But all this like jargon shit, you know, like, what is that? Yeah. You know? So, um, so I actually opted out of Western medicine and I went back to grad school, um, for a semester. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm going to try to do this like without Western medicine and just try to like take care of myself and you know, like do like homeopathy and mm-hmm. try to learn what I can. And so I went, <laughs> I, was, I mean, 
I try to like think that had that not happened, I would not be where I'm where I'm at today. I I think that my body needed to just kind of like restart in some way. That wasn't the best way to do it, mm -hmm. but I did do it that way. And then when I came back in December for like break, I went for another check. And they're like, you really like need to start something right now. But in that in that uh, semester time period mm -hmm. where you relapsed and you're like, you know, screw Western medicine. Yeah, I got this. Yeah. And you're back in school. Yeah. Are you were you able to be present? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, I was trying to. Mm hmm. Um. But I was also like trying to figure out my shit out, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then I was like living with some, and some. I'm although I'm grateful. This monk uncle in Rhode Island, he has a cabin, a cottage in like Johnston, not in Providence, which is like 25 minutes out, and it's free. And I'm like, okay. Mm -hmm. But that also meant that I was not connected to community, mm -hmm. you know. And so like all these things in retrospect that I'm realizing, you know. Yeah. Um. So no, I mean half the time I was just like trying to survive. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's a part of it, you know, right. but I'm just like, oh, my God. And were you writing? Were you trying able to, to write? I mean, I had I was writing my thesis. Yeah, I was writing um, a piece I I still want to revisit. It's called Spirit Trust. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was writing. You, do you know Rebecca Noon? No, she's also a cancer survivor, but um, this amazing theater artist, woman director. And she staged, I think I wrote like maybe like 200 pages or something. She staged the whole thing without me being there. So, so I came back for break, left my thesis there, went, came here, came back home, got checked, was there like, you need to start treatment, called Eric in. He's mm -hmm. like, don't worry about it. You can do your last semester low residency. Mm -hmm. And so I stayed here for the spring semester while they staged my thesis. And it but was, you weren't part, you weren't yeah, able to be I wasn't, part of it. I was in the room, I couldn't hear, you know, like all the things that you do as a right, yeah. writer, you know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And did you, did you ever go back to Providence? Not for school. I went back to get my shit. Yeah. <laughs> like my, you know, my couches and my clothes and yeah. And just to clean up. And thank the uncle for letting me stay in his right, cottage. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering if there's, uh, if there's, I'm asking this because this is where my mind would be. Like, a, did you feel closure for that period of your life, the grad school Brown period of your life? Um. enough for now mm -hmm. enough for now um but I, I know what you mean i feel like initially when i graduated and i have my hands in quotes yeah i was like what the fuck did i just do with my life for the past like four years mm -hmm. you know i was like oh my god um and I've gone back to Providence, I think, once to grab my stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I always said 
you know, people always ask me, oh, what do you think about Providence and Rhode Island? Like, and I always say that I'm looking forward to having a new relationship mm. with Providence. Because mm-hmm. I feel like it's, it's a nice place, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I think my relationship with that, with Providence was, was through my grad school experience. Right. And so I'm like, yeah, I feel like I want to have a new relationship Yeah. with Providence. So how did your, how did your health evolve in this, in this time period? Yeah. So then I came home, started, uh, my body prepping my body for that second bone marrow transplant. And that's also, I mean, prepping your body means you're, you're just doing like a ton of like clinical trial chemo Mm -hmm. to prep your body. And like, they have to bring your body, your body, the levels in your body, like, to its lowest so basically to the point where you're gonna die and then they give you these cells and it's interesting the way they explain it to me is like your body is a garden right and like uh the soil in your body is no longer good so we have to like clean everything out you know so when we once we lay down all the soil which is bringing the levels down to the lowest where like you're basically gonna die yeah we give you like the cells so in grafts and mm-hmm. it's like basically planting new like a new garden right. <laughs> i'm like okay whatever <laughs> that's the kind of explanation i need yeah because i can't <laughs> same here yeah same here. yeah it's hard to understand the language of medicine yeah yeah, yeah. and it worked uh i think so i mean i'm seven years it'll be eight years in remission in april after that after that second bone marrow transplant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think what a lot of people don't talk about is sort of like the recovery stage mm-hmm. and sort of like the mind fuck that happens. Mm-hmm. And then all of the things that you do to sort of like continue to try to live. Yeah. You know? Because um, when I was going through treatment, I was reading a bunch of articles and um, I read probably like a psychology today article where they're like people who die from cancer um many cases folks die because of not because of like the treatment but just because of like the mindset you know i don't know how accurate that is either mm. but i like, i can see how that can be a thing you know i think i definitely had really low my low lows you know um when I was going through treatment, like my low, low days yeah. and they lasted maybe a little too long. Mm. Um, but I think the actor in me was also like pretending enough sometimes where like, I actually started to believe, you know, yeah, and that, that made was, a difference. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, yeah. Everyone's different. Yeah. I, I, I think that, uh, there is something about, um, you know, the there isn't a separation. You know, everybody talks about the mind body, mm-hmm. right? there, but I don't know if there's a separation because because I I consider the mind part of the body. Like the yeah. mind is the mm-hmm. body. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there are so many anecdotal stories of people, um, at the end of their life, just being ready, yeah, or needing to be told it's okay. 
to let mm. go and you can't know what that experience is because yeah. you can only experience it when one you've gone through time it. Yeah. right but there's so many stories of that happening that there is like uh something right in the mind like if you can say okay i'm ready and let go in your mind then you must be able to say i'm not ready i'm gonna hold on maybe. which is kind of what you oh, were talking yeah, about maybe. right yeah to, and that helped you hold on yeah this is coming from a complete idiot with, a, with yeah. regards to I mean, medicine that's, like that, i don't that's know a good perspective i don't know? know anything about anything yeah, yeah. But uh, it's just, you know, you hear so much and you experience family members passing and, mm-hmm. and uh, even somebody like me who is not particularly uh, spiritual, um, you just see these things and uh, I don't know, I'm not, it's hard to put words, it's hard to put words to it, but this is what I'm thinking about as you're talking about your, you know, the actor part of you. Yeah. Convincing yourself. The, your, the self part of you yeah or just not allowing that i mean i'm i'm not talking for other actors but when i was an actor performer there's a sense of like there's a lot by the way for listeners there's a lot of air quotes going on here. <laughs> <laughs> there is there a lot of like i don't care i didn't write this i it's like a, a yeah, kind of like arrogance yeah. but also now when i see actors who sort of allow that arrogance and ignorance like there's a beauty that comes to it. Like you're able to be so sort of like, uh, what is it like unfiltered, right? Mm-hmm. That allows so many things to be seen and like so much of your gifts that you don't know that you have to be seen, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so, yeah, I think that part of like being an actor is like, I don't know, whatever, I'll care, I'll try whatever, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. not being so, maybe not being so heady or in yeah. my head, which is not a place that I was in coming back from grad school. Like, I remember I was sitting with my sister at the time. My niece, um, she's, she's a single mother. My niece was, like, maybe eight. And I was trying to talk to her, and I would say these things. And she's like, what? What? You know? And my sister's like, Katie, she's eight. <laughs> and I was like, what? How? why am I speaking this way to her? Like, I think I said something like, I mean, it wasn't too deep, but it was like, I can't really decipher that, you know, or yeah. it's just like, what does that mean? But funny enough, she started using the word, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this little like nine, ten, eight, ten year old, <laughs> eight, nine year old. Then I realized, oh shit, this is the mindset that I've been in. Yeah. You know? And I'm like, who actually does talk like this? Unless if they're trying to impress somebody, you know, or like, trying to be better or you know yeah i'm like holy shit talk about decolonization you know yeah and unlearning a lot of shit that you know you you just you know you finish grad school which on its own is like a huge accomplishment it's like super hard to do when everything else is going fine right so you go through it when um you're you're trying to conquer cancer simultaneously, right? Mm-hmm. Your your brain must be like scrambled eggs by the time <laughs> you get back here. Well, you're already here, but yeah. you know, I'm using air quotes now. Get back <laughs> to real life after school is over. Like, what did you what did you think life was gonna be post school? I mean. 
I, I mean, I thought I would have more connections. Mm-hmm. You know, I think. I mean, it all just seems so nebulous now, right? It's like, you go to school, you get a job. You go to school, you, this kind of schooling, you get this kind of job. Mm-hmm, you know, and you're mm-hmm. like, oh, now I'm gonna be this playwright, who's gonna go here and there and travel and go to New York and go. You know, yeah. And um, I mean, I think I was sort of like bouncing back and forth between like being real and also being ideal, right? I'm like, okay, so. <clears throat> I'm around all these playwrights who have different voices, different ways of like understanding the world. A lot of folks are really like gravitating towards their work because they speak to <clears throat> a larger like audience, basically a white audience. Yeah. You know, and like my I center really Hmong characters. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell, I feel like I tell universal stories, but I center Hmong characters and BIPOC characters. Um, and so I'm like, uh, how am I going to do this? So then um, one of the other writers in our cohort was a filmmaker. And she was also teaching a, a class at Brown. <laughs> and uh, she was leaving for like a month or something. And she had a, uh, the, I can't remember his name, but he is like a showrunner for like Party of Five or something. Mm-hmm. And that was like for 20 years or something. He was going to step in for her for a month. And um, so I took her class and he came and taught for a month. And I was like, this is interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the first time because God forbid I do art for money that I live off of my, you know, art. You yeah. know, I think there was a mentality there that like we don't do money or art for money, you know. And so there was sort of like a little bit of a shaming there. And I'm like, listen. I mean, the moment I was able to tell myself, listen, you come from a refugee immigrant family, you got to fucking like make it, mm. you know, like you need to feed yourself and like mouths, you know. Um, when I saw when so when he came and taught the class, I was like, oh, this is interesting. And I think because also I had been in like playwriting world for so long. And also then the way he was teaching playwriting spoke to me in a way where I think TV raised me, right? And so I was like, oh, yeah. it just felt a lot more familiar to me. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And then I was like, oh, I really, I'm really into this. But I felt like I couldn't say anything to my peers at the time because everyone was like so into like, we do art for the sake of art, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, well, I can't remember where I was going with this now. So. This is this is your post post-grad school life like your oh, yes. re-entry into yeah. quote unquote yeah, yeah. the real world so <laughs> so then um i mean i thought you know i gave myself a goal i'm like okay when you graduate maybe a goal is to have like a production within five years mm-hmm. you know and like i started to do the sort of like methodical things that like playwrights try to do and but then i couldn't like go to conferences because i was still healing mm. i couldn't go see shows in New York or see what shows the public was doing or, you know. Um, and then I was like, I don't know. And I'm like, the moment I did have a chance to go to New York, I'm like, oh my God, New York City, New York City is so exhausting. Mm-hmm. Like it's walking everywhere. I'm so, I get fatigued so easily, you know? So it's like all these things and then just trying to find opportunities to like still stay plugged in. Um, but I found them to be really exhausting. Mm. And also when I would go, I was like, uh, eh, it's okay. It's not really speaking to me, like seeing this thing. 
Um, and then I think trying to find opportunities here locally. You know, I think thankfully, like Playwright Center is here. Yeah. And that's kind of cool, even though I always say that uh, uh, my first rejection letter I got from them was 20 years ago, you know, <laughs> and it's only taken me 20 years to get in, you yeah, know, yeah. so do what you will with that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Florilino uh, Languidino, who is actually a director, um, he came here. We were in the same program. Uh, Filipino-American director, and he took the job at Park Square Theater, which is no more, but um, he came here, and he was like, there's, like, a huge Hmong community. I can't believe, like, these theaters have not tapped into that audience. I'm like, you're telling me, and then he invited me to um, work with him and uh, Ping Chong and Company. Mm. I would, like, get trained in to, like, the Ping Chong and Company style, and, like, we would develop a piece, um, within the Hmong community, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think he was really trying to like start that relationship building. Mm -hmm. And it was a great piece, you know, like I worked with like five community was, it became a piece about um, Hmong women's experiences. Mm -hmm. It was a wonderful piece. Um, Yeah. And so, I mean, what I actually learned about grad school coming out is that like, oh shit, I actually have to teach myself a lot of shit now, like working in the field. You know, yeah, I like think I, what you <laughs> what you are talking about is super relatable to everybody who ha- who is uh, has gone through grad school because there is this this sense of what grad school will give you and what you will be yeah. following the earning of this degree and what a career is going to look like. And what you end up learning is that uh, your career looks like you, whatever your career looks like. Yeah. And. Uh, all of those folks that come out of school blasting out of the stratosphere, uh, that's not who you, we should be like comparing ourselves to because that's actually the anomaly. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's great for them yeah. that that has happened, um, but that's not what happens. Yeah. What happens is essentially what is happening to you. Yeah. Yeah. And also I feel like learning to see like I think just changing the way you see things Mm. you know I mean that took a while it still continues to evolve for me you know like like I could so easily be like oh my god I don't have this I don't have that you know but also like like I'm on this fellowship right now through um, the Center for Cultural Power out of Oakland mm-hmm. as a, um, a culture bearer. So I applied as a storyteller playwriting um, in their culture bearer and artist disruptor um, program. And I got it. And like basically, you know, it started in March and it goes through till next year. And I'm like, you know, I get a living wage to like write stories and do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And so it's so easy, I think, to forget that, you know. But it's like, I think this. Um, place where like you you want to strive for more but also try to be remember to be thankful for what you have you know and it's like yeah yeah there's so much scarcity uh in our field the thing that um i I, think specifically for playwrights though i agree you know i agree because (laughs) because of so much uh 
isolate. We're not paid. We're not in general paid to do the work yeah. that we're doing, you yeah. know, uh, unless we are fortunate to get a fellowship or a commission yeah. of some sort. And we are on our own writing our stories and then hoping and praying. Right. Yeah. Um, and because of that, uh, this year I've started to like my mind has started to shift to being um, not thankful for the opportunities, but present in the opportunities mm, as they're happening. That's maybe that's a better word. Like, yeah. While it's happening, be really there and be part of it uh, and not be like thinking of it as a launching pad to the next thing, yeah. or maybe I can parlay it into something else or yeah. what's the thing that's happening in four months. It's like, no, there's a thing happening right now. And for me, that is exactly why I do it. Yeah. And if this is why I do it, then I need to be here while it's happening. And that's the super shift for me this year, mm. which makes me now wonder, um, about your shift that we've alluded to a bunch of times, like, like where you're at right now in, in transitioning, if that's the right word. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe it's, it is a transition or maybe it's a coming back to just okay. a deepening. Yeah. Okay. You know, talk about um, that. I think that before this year, um, I was sort of contemplating like, oh, how do I write to like a bigger audience? Do I write, maybe I don't write Moan characters. Maybe I write Asian American characters. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I started that, but I was like, oh, but this doesn't really interest me either. You know, because I write very much from a character. Um, like I start with characters first, you know, and like what I know are like whatever people that who are around me, which is like my community family, friends, you know? And so, um, I felt like I just needed to really own it that like, I do tell stories about my lived experiences and about my community, you know, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And, um, I write for myself and for my community, I hope, but I do know that like, I don't know. I feel like I, I think I said it earlier, right? Like, I feel like while I, I center Hmong characters, like the stories I'm telling are essentially like heart based, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm not telling a story that's so specific to a thing. I mean, I am, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I'm just like, it's, and I feel like stories sort of like based in the heart are like the most universal. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Yet folks like to spend so much time just looking at the scenery. Or the genre or like the yeah. Right. Or like right. the choreography or which is important too. That yeah. they they sometimes it's like the forest through the trees. They don't they don't end up seeing the heart of the story. Yeah. You know, or a play is being is a play is judged like, oh Oh, among play. Well, we did one of those three years ago. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Like, so what? Right. Yeah. Because it's it's still it's still an important story. It's still a relatable story. Just like like I could write a play, and there's a heart to it. Like, yeah. You know. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and then I mean, 
and then like i think the whole like business part of it does come in right like if people are like oh we have among play among but it's like is it how we talk about our plays now you know is it like how yeah. we train others to talk about our work i mean we don't yeah. as playwrights we don't talk about our our work that way no we to don't. each other like yeah what are you working on i mean i know that to people who are trying to support me and like get others to pick up my work i think that has sort of been the angle right yeah. and i'm like do i have to like you know maybe give new language you know yeah. around like yeah because then it's sort of just this the way that hollywood tries to diversify right but it's like, mm, are you really diversifying when you put one person in the background or like this, yeah. you know, yeah, Asian or black character here? You know, it's like. Uh, and then pat yourself what? on the pat yourself. Yeah, on the exactly. Back. You know, look at our diversity. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Oh my God, are we like way over time? Sorry. No, we're not. Okay. Um, unless unless you have to run. No, I'm, I think I'm good. <laughs> I have a dog at home, but I think my husband's going home. Okay. <laughs> um. So as you mentioned near the beginning of this, you you uh, you've lived a lot of lives, <laughs> right? Um. What do you think? What do you think your life, your next life, looks like? I don't know. I hope. I hope there's a lot more calmness. Mm. Because <laughs> um, I feel like that's what I'm always trying to work towards. It's like staying calm. And I think being content. You know? Are you content? I always say enough for now, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. I think in my next life, the next version of me. I'm also, you know, I was listening to a podcast that I was turned turned to, um, Layla Saad. And she had a guest on um, talking about um, what kind of ancestor do you want to be, mm. you know? And so I've been really sitting with that, you know, like what can I do right now to like plant a more fertile ground yeah. for others? And I think the guest and I, I feel so bad for not remember her name, but she said something about like, I'm not the first one to do this, you know? I am the first one to, I'm the one to be doing it right now. Mm -hmm. So I think trying to really digest that and like be like, oh yeah, I'm not the first one. I'm not the, you know, but I'm the person who's doing it right now and eventually I'm going to be handing it off. And so I think hoping my next life will sort of embody something of me being more mindful of like what kind of ancestry. Thank you, Katie, and thank you to Indigenous Roots Cultural Arts Center for allowing us the space to talk. Please visit katiekavang.com 
to learn more about her and her work. Thank you to Rob, Ali, and Kalundra from American Theatre Magazine. I appreciate all you do for the subtext and for the American theatre community. Music from this episode is by It's Water. The theme song for the subtext is High by International Pen Pal. This episode was produced and edited by me. KJ Jarbo is our associate producer. Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is Panic Girls by Isla Harrison. Love this play. It's like Mean Girls meets Carol Churchill. It's fantastic. <laughs>